Hello, podcast family. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast 2022. In today's episode with Jared Hall, we are discussing the power of words and language, both how they can be used for positive and negative influences for pain. We also discuss Jared's fantastic book, Sticks and Stones, or also known as Making Sense of Pain, which is a collection of analogies and stories to better understand pain. And now this is one of my most recommended books to patients and other healthcare providers, and one I personally refer back to very regularly. Analogies can be incredibly powerful tools to help guide an understanding of pain, both in terms of how it comes about, but also why it may stick around a bit longer than you want it to. These analogies, whilst aimed at people in pain, are also very useful for healthcare practitioners to take on board and use in their own treatment or explanations to patients with acute or chronic and persistent pain. Jared talks incredibly well about these topics, and there are so many fantastic nuggets of information to take away from this episode. So who is Jared Hall? Jared is a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from Fort Worth, Texas in America. His clinical focus is in orthopedics with an emphasis in implementation of the current science of pain to aid in the management of both chronic pain and acute injuries. He's also the co-owner of Modern Pain Care, an education institute for practicing clinicians seeking to further their clinical expertise and understanding of how to interact with those in pain. And finally, he's the co-author of the clinical resource text, the brilliant Making Sense of Pain, a collection of analogies and stories to better understand pain. And a link to his book you can find in the show notes below. Now, this episode is brought to you in association with thebackpainpodcast.com. Are you in pain looking for someone to help you? Then look no further than our very own website, where we have a dedicated section of doctors, clinicians, and therapists who have been screened by us to make sure that you get the very best, most up-to-date care possible for your pain. And if you're a clinician and you're looking to be listed with us, simply get in contact with us via hello at the back, or email hello at the back pain podcast or via social media at the back pain podcast on all platforms. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please, please share it with someone who needs to hear it. Be that a friend, a family member, a patient, chuck it in a WhatsApp group or tag us on social media. It means the world to us that so many of you are listening. But that's it from me. I'll leave you to sit back and enjoy the brilliant Jared Hall. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. And welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted to introduce today Jared Hall, who's joining us all the way from Dallas, Fort Worth, and Texas. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Uh, no, I appreciate you guys having me on. I've uh, I've seen uh, your your names floating around for a while out on the, the the social medias and whatnot, and you know, listen to a few episodes, and uh, it, it's an honor to actually be on here. So I appreciate you guys inviting me. Fantastic. Well, you said you're a guest. You're a guest that we've wanted to get on for a, for a very long time. So thank you for taking the time to to talk to us. We're going to jump straight into it today. We know we're going to touch on a lot of things, a lot around your book, which you wrote, which is called Sticks and Stones, which I know we're going to mention throughout this whole podcast, and we will link to it into the in the show notes as well. And that is all based around metaphors, analogies, and languages, um, and languages for people in pain. So why does language matter when someone has pain or when we're talking to someone about pain? You know, I I think that probably to talk about why it matters when talking to somebody in pain, you you even have to back up and just say, why does language matter? 
right? So we're a very social species, humans. We, we communicate verbally, non-verbally. We, we um, have hidden meanings in the things that we say. We have a lot of inferences. And when we use language, we, we tend to convey a lot of information uh, and maybe even much more depth of information than just what our words are. Um, so you know you can look at somebody and say something sharply, or you can put a little innuendo in, into a sentence or a statement, or you can say a sentence and um, the same exact words mean something different in different contexts. It means something different with your friend or your spouse or your enemy or whoever it may be, right? So if we if we back it up a little bit, I think that we first have to lay the groundwork that in and of itself, language is, is really important in the way that we speak to people, the way that we communicate with people um, has a lot of bearing on the way that they feel. Uh, and um, the, the human social interaction of communication, it, it actually changes our physiology. You know, if I say something sharp and aggressive to you, you might get a little uh, jolt of uh, norepinephrine. You might get a little bit of, you know, cortisol release or whatever it is. You're, you get the fight or flight hormones going in. Your physiology actually changes based on the words that I use towards you. So if we start to zero that down in to somebody that is experiencing pain or somebody that's had an injury, all of a sudden that becomes more important in a lot of ways because not only do we have this interpersonal, interhuman communication and connection, but that person in pain is maybe already in a vulnerable state, right? Maybe their their system is already a little bit ramped up. Their, their body is in an inflammatory state. They're in a protective guarding state because they've had an injury. They've had a surgery. They've had pain that, that changes the way that they move and the way that they feel and the kind of the way that their body is responding. So when we communicate with people in pain, we, we need to be even more cognizant of the language that we use and in the meanings that we convey or maybe even don't mean to convey, but accidentally convey to people. So without going off on too long of a tangent and, you know, um, going down a rabbit hole, I think, I think that I would start there just by really emphasizing the fact that communication isn't just words. Uh, communication actually affects the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that our body responds, the the thoughts that we have, what we perceive about our bodies. And, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that. And I guess that the language will also differ from different cultures as well. You know, what we might say in one language or one culture can mean something completely different in another culture, you know, either for, either for negative or for positive. And then that has bearings as well, depending on where, you know, you might be where you might hail from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, even within the same culture, if you're talking to people of different generations or different backgrounds, different ages, uh, the, the language that you use may um, may have a different impact on somebody just based on their age or maybe even their their political orientation, things like that. So that, that really dives down into knowing who you're communicating. So we're healthcare providers, right? So we, we work with patients and uh Part of being a really successful healthcare provider is is really taking a lot of time and effort to understand who you're interacting with and, and understand what that person brings to the table and, and trying to dig deep and understand what is their context, what are their beliefs, what is their history, what is, what is their state of mind about their injury or about their experience in the healthcare system right now? What do they expect from me? What do they expect out of our interaction? And all of that is going to shape the language that we use. And um, we, we should be pretty, pretty purposeful about making sure that we communicate in a way that is going to be helpful for somebody rather than harmful for someone. 
So I guess when we're talking about language being harmful to people, I guess, as you said, depending on patient's age, if, you, if we use terms, you know, which are kind of, we're hopefully getting rid of now, like wear and tear or degeneration, if you're using those terms with someone who's 95, they might be, they might interpret that very differently to compared to if you use that term with someone who's 21. So if someone who's 21, here's the term that they're wear and tear, they might think, oh, I've got the spine of an 80 year old, I'm crumbling, I'm damaged, all that type of thing. Whereas if you use it with someone who's 90, although it's still not a good phraseology, to use they might almost be expecting that to some extent and you know we hear patients say oh well I'm 95 of course my knees look like they're 95 or my back or whatever it might be so it, it's it you know they take it on board very differently I guess yeah so I, I think along with that we probably can't have that conversation without talking a little bit about uh, you know what we would call the nocebo effect and I know that this is a patient facing podcast and this is for the general public but but I think it would do the general public a lot of good to have some sort of uh, understanding or comprehension of the concept of a, a nocebo effect. Um, so most people are really familiar with the whole concept of a placebo effect, meaning that you know in the most traditional sense you're given a sugar pill but yet you have a positive response to a sugar pill and the sugar pill should not and does not have any you know real uh, biochemical effect on your body to make you better, but you feel better. Maybe your your pain levels go down, or maybe your sleep improves, or maybe your blood pressure lowers, or all of these sort of things that we've seen happen with placebo effects. There, there's a flip side to that, and, and it's called the nocebo effect. And it's when um, maybe somebody is set up with a little bit of a negative expectation, or it's the negative effects that could occur from a treatment or some sort of intervention that's actually not supposed to have any any effects. So um, just like a sugar pill shouldn't have any effects, your average person would say, well, the language that we use to communicate between each other shouldn't have any effect. Or, you know, what I think about what's going on in my body probably shouldn't have any effect because that's not a real medicine. That's not a real treatment. But the, the truth of the matter is when you have uh, maybe negative thoughts or fearful thoughts or concerns about things or maybe unhelpful beliefs that um, your body is worn out or it's it, it's torn or it's degenerated or, or things that might not actually reflect uh, the true nature of what's going on within your body, that can actually change your physiology a little bit. That can make your body a little bit maybe more pro-inflammatory. It can put your nervous system in a heightened state of arousal that maybe has a more aggressive response to a stimulus, you know, where you where you would normally not have a super aggressive response. If you're in that frame of mind, if you're in that, that, that fear um, expectation scenario, and this could even be a little bit on the subconscious level. This, this doesn't have to be something that's on the front of your mind all the time. But if your core beliefs are that, wow, my knee is really worn out. My, my knee is really degenerated. You know, I'm kind of scared to squat or go up and down stairs because that's going to make my knee worse. So subconsciously, you start avoiding stairs, you start avoiding squatting. And, and what that inevitably does is maybe for your knee, that makes your quad muscle less strong. And maybe uh, the joint fluid within your knee, it makes it a little bit less lubricated. Um, we know that when we exercise our body, our tissues get a little bit stronger. You know, maybe our cartilage stays healthier and our bones stay healthier yeah. and our muscles stay stronger. So when you're subconsciously avoiding these things, it would actually maybe make your knee a little bit healthier. You're inadvertently making your knee less healthy because you have this underlying concept of what's going in your body. And a lot of that is driven by language and things that you've heard and maybe things that your friends or your family or other healthcare providers have told you about 
you know, joints wearing out and, and things being ripped and torn and degenerated. Crumbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there, the, the, li- the list goes on and on and on. And it's just um, a lot of people wave this off as, you know, maybe foo-foo stuff or, oh, this is, um, you're trying to say things are all in my head. No, absolutely not. Like, I would never say anything is all in your head. What I'm saying is that your your thoughts affect your physiology and what people say to you actually affects the way that your body functions and the way that your body and hormones and neurotransmitters functions. Well, that changes the way that you feel and, and that makes very, very real pain, right? Mm. But that pain that you're experiencing might not be a perfect reflection of what is actually going on in your knee or your back, but that doesn't make it less real. That's amazing. And I mean, that's huge for anyone listening. We're not we're not here talking about hurt feelings. Uh, this is a real physiological change and uh, a real outcome change in habits, change in in your cellular structures at the very core that can last years and years. This is real stuff. And and people think, well, I can't see I can't see this on an MRI or an X ray, so it's not as tangible, right? You can't tell if. Uh, your nerve endings have become more sensitive on an MRI. And you can't tell if there's lots of little inflammatory, what's called cytokines, little chemicals that make things sensitive and inflamed. You can't see that on an MRI. And you can't tell if the pathways sending messages up to your brain have, have become ramped up with any sort of imaging. But that doesn't mean that you don't have all of these changes that are being facilitated within your body based on all sorts of factors, whether it's your mental health or your sleep health or your nutrition, the things that you think about your body, your fear avoidance, if you're if you're not engaging in activities and all of this stuff goes goes hand in hand with each other and you can't really separate it from each other. Mm. Well, we, we've spoken a lot about fear avoidance and that's such a, a massive part of treatment or recovery or management of, of persistent pain, whichever you, you call it, because when people are scared of doing a movement because of something that a practitioner may have said to them, as you just said, they avoid it. And the, that becomes, that might be a hobby, it might be an activity, it might be something that they love to do, it might be gymnastics, dancing, gardening, playing with their children, whatever it might be, and then they avoid it. And then not only do they then lose the benefits of said activity, they also then stop doing the thing which they really enjoy doing. And that, you know, has all the mental health side of things as well. So it's got a big, big knock on effect just from one simple phrase that a healthcare practitioner might use in a throwaway comment of, oh yeah, be careful when you're lifting or, you know, be careful with your back. You're probably going to be weak there for life or something like that, you know, which all these phrases, which we've, we've heard a lot of and the lifelong implications. We was talking on this with a, another guest a few days ago about, I had a patient last week who um, was told in 1983 that he had an acute low episode of low back pain and he was told by a healthcare practitioner that, yeah, he was probably going to have to be careful because he's always going to have a weakness there. And so he came in to see me and said, yeah, I've always had a weak back since 1983. And so he hasn't really done anything because he's been protective and he's managed fine. He hasn't been in a lot of pain for that time, but he hasn't really done things that he might have otherwise wanted to do just because of a throwaway comment that someone said, you know, 35, nearly 40 years ago. Hmm. And, and, and that's, that's the thing that a lot of us healthcare providers don't recognize is that patients come to us and, and you know, a lot of time they view us as experts. We, we've gone to training. We've gone to university. We've got our license. We, we're in this position of authority a lot of times. Yeah. And the language that we use or the things that we say, they can really stick with people for a long time. They can be meaningful. They can be impactful. And you can use that, that scenario 
to be really purposeful about setting people up for success and, and confidence in their body, or you can be haphazard and you can use that scenario to accidentally set somebody up for 30 years of avoiding mm. activities that they may love or they may enjoy. And, and then, you know, there's, there is some evidence to say, well, if you do avoid moving, let's say your back, you're, you're not bending your back, you're not flexing your back, you're not using it in a way that um, it's naturally, let's say, designed or evolved to, to do, well, then you actually lead to it becoming weaker and at higher risk of injury because it doesn't have the flexibility and strength that it other would, otherwise would have if you were using it in a normal, you know, everyday manner and not protecting it all the time. Um, so it's, it's just, you know, for an analogy... Uh, you might think of if you're if you like to work with your hands or you like to garden over time, you know, your hands build calluses, they get thicker skin, they become a little bit tougher and more robust. But if you overwork your hands one day, you might get a blister, right? And everybody listening to this podcast knows, well, if I get a blister that really stinks, like that hurts for a little while, but I'm going to let it rest. I'm going to let that skin heal up. And then I'm going to go back to what I'm doing and gradually try to strengthen that blister up or that skin into a callus. But if you said, wow, I've got a blister, I'm going to put my hand in a glove and I'm never going to use it again. I'm never going to work with that hand again. When you take that glove off, you're going to have very, very soft, delicate skin that probably is not strong enough to handle even close to the amount of activity that you're doing right now. I love that example. That's such a, a, a poignant one because everybody knows what it's like to do a task that they haven't done before, whether that's gardening with a spade and you get a bit of a sore hand the following day. You know, p- people are aware of that and you don't think, oh, I have to protect my hand. You know, you might think I might, you know, you, you understand that it, it will take take a bit of time or you know that someone who's been working with their hands for years and years and years might have rougher hands than if you've never worked with your hands. And that's just a, a really, you know, I don't even want to say simplistic because it's not because it makes perfect sense when it comes to uh, understanding how the body works. We adapt to those loads and those stresses and get better and more resilient and more robust because of it. It's relatable though, yeah. Mm. And so that's a really good analogy. And that's obviously one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on was to talk about your fantastic book, Sticks and Stones. So can you just set it up for us about what Sticks and Stones actually is or a little bit about the book itself? Uh, Sure, sure. So... um... Sticks and Stones was a book that I think I published maybe almost three years ago now uh, with my co-author, a guy named Jim Hefner, who's a he's a physio here in uh, Denver, Colorado, or he's in the Colorado area. And um, him and I, we had been kind of bantering back and forth about communication with patients and patient education and saying there wasn't really a good resource uh, to help other clinicians kind of understand how to explain complex topics to patients in a way that was just easier to understand. And we weren't throwing all sorts of medical jargon at people. Nobody wants to hear all sorts of medical jargon, right? I don't want to hear it. My patients don't want to hear it. So it started as a blog post. Jim and I were just kind of working on a blog together. We were kind of writing down some ideas and the list got longer and longer and longer. So then we decided we should probably organize it and, and maybe put it in a, you know, a long form format. And by the time we got doing that, got done doing that, we had almost 50 different stories and analogies. And that just led to the normal uh, progression of, you know, why don't we, why don't we try to publish this? Why don't we try to put this out, see if people enjoy it, see if people uh, give us some feedback on it. Um, and get it out to as many people as possible. So Jim and I actually self-published this book as Sticks and Stones, and we used the title Sticks and Stones um, as a reference to the Sticks and Stones, you know, men never hurt me type of thing, yeah. but a little bit of a twist on that. Uh, or Sticks and Stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But we went the other way to say that yeah. words can be like Sticks and Stones, right? 
so we did that for a while, maybe six or six or nine months. And then we actually ended up partnering up with a publisher uh, called OPTP and they changed the name. I actually have it right here. They changed it to Making Sense of Pain. Um, so we still like the title Sticks and Stones, but they didn't think that it would um, have as much of a ring or, you know, they people wouldn't find it on the Internet as easily. So mm -hmm. they changed it over to Making Sense of Pain. No, I'm glad that. And obviously it is it's a collection of, as I think you put in the title, a collection of analogies and stories to help people understand pain. So why are analogies so helpful? You know, why why as healthcare practitioners should we be using analogies to help people make sense of persistent pain or acute pain or whatever whatever they may have? I think if you if you really pay attention to just human communication and, and great storytellers and and all of this sort of stuff, great speakers, they tend to use a lot of analogies and metaphors to, because you're taking something that's kind of abstract to the average person, or it's there's there's a lot of complexity with neurotransmitters and receptor pathways and the way that the the human body works. So you're taking this really abstract idea. And you're trying to connect it to something that everybody understands, that your average everyday person has experience with. So they can say, well, I don't need all of, you know, this mumbly, jumbly jargon about, you know, complex, complex anatomy and physiology. But if there's a if there's a story, if there's an analogy, if there's a metaphor that makes sense with my life, like I have a callus. Right. Well, we could say a disc herniation in the, in the lumbar spine. I know this is the back pain podcast, right? A disc herniation in the lumbar spine is in a lot of ways. It's similar to a callus. Uh, it, it's an overload of tissue that leads to a, a, an injury that short term that will heal. But a disc herniation just happens to get a ton more, um, you know, attention and awareness because it's in your lumbar spine, so you can't see it. Uh, it's very close to some nerve in, uh, some some nerve roots, which uh, tend to cause some pretty darn severe pain if you have that injury because the the dorsal root in in, in the lumbar spine that's the most sensitive structure in the human body. So if it gets some inflammation on it, it hurts. Uh, you know, so much more than if you get a little bit of a blister, but the high pain levels, well, that creates a lot of fear and that creates a lot of over-medicalization because if anybody that's listening to this podcast that's had a disc herniation knows, man, that's probably some of the worst pain that they've ever had in their life. And uh, it's very, very scary and you can't see it. You, you can't see it healing over time. It creates all sorts of symptoms that absolutely makes you want to go get imaging, makes you want to go see the specialist, go see the surgeon, hey, have this fixed. Um, so I forget where I was going with that, but <laughs> you, you take these, oh, I was talking about calluses, right? So yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even though even though a disc herniation is so scary and so intense, there's a lot of parallels between a, uh, you know, a blister on your hand and the development of a callus because they're both human body tissues. They both have the capacity to heal. They both have the capacity to adapt and get stronger over time. It's just one creates a lot more pain. So it's a lot scarier. One that we, we can't see with our, with our eyes visually. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot scarier and one that has a history of being over medicalized. And, and that's what all the research is showing us now is that we've probably done way too many surgeries on things like disc herniations and things like disc degeneration in the lumbar spine because um, until we developed really, really high resolution imaging, we couldn't even see that stuff. We just said, ah, you've got back pain or man, you've got, you've got sciatica, you've got stuff going on. 
Yeah. Now, now we're like, ooh, we have an MRI. I can see how, you know, quote unquote, terrible your lumbar spine is. We need to go in and do that surgery right now. But what that was, was swinging the pendulum too far because we had never seen in there before. Then all of a sudden we could see everything. And we said, well, there's all sorts of pathology. There's all sorts of problems going on down there that we need to go in and fix. Even though as the evidence has mounted, we see that there's not a strong correlation between a lot of the changes that happen in your low back and a lot of uh, the pain experience. So I know, again, I'm, you're going to let me talk too much. I'm going to go off on tangents, so I apologize. No such thing. Well, these are very interesting tangents. So this is exactly what we're, what we're for. And, you know, the analogies, or they say the analogies, that what, exactly what you've just said. We, we talking about MRIs. We x-rayed, we x-rayed and MRIed everyone who had pain, but we didn't really MRI people who didn't have pain. So we had nothing to compare it to originally. You know, we, you had back pain, you had an MRI. There's something, there's a surgical target there. Let's go in and fix it. But we didn't MRI someone of, you know, similar age, sex, gender, whatever it was, you know, with no pain and go, oh, actually... That looks very similar, but this person doesn't have any pain. So as you just said, the correlation between those tissue changes or those visual changes on scans and pain is, is very small, um, which can be hard to kind of get your head around, obviously, because if you've seen a surgeon or you've got pain and they've shown you an MRI and they go, there's your problem. You know, that person is the authority on on backs, on spines, on surgery. So it's very hard to then kind of when someone you know like us comes in and says, well, actually, you know, it's not quite that simple. It's very hard to have that conversation sometimes. There's probably people listening to this going, yeah, but, I, but I've got pain and I've had an MRI and I've, you know, they've shown me that disc bulge and they've shown me that it's pressing on a nerve and that's why I'm getting the leg pain. And then I had the that's surgery and my pain's it. gone away. Yeah, I've, I've seen it. That, that, that was my pain. So that must have been the problem. So it's, it is a very hard conversation to have with patients who, who have been through this pain experience. Oh, it's, it's incredibly difficult. And... W- what we need to make sure that we we don't do is that we as clinicians don't become cynical. We as clinicians don't lose patients with our, you know, we don't lose our own patients with our patients um, because they're the ones in pain right now. They're experiencing something terrible and they need somebody that is uh, calm. They need somebody that is patient. They need somebody that is understanding. And what they need is somebody that's not going to come in and try to forcefully change their beliefs all at once. Because you and I know, and the three of us know, when we went through our medical education, we were taught primarily the same thing that our patients were taught about uh, tissue injury being directly related to pain. And the more the tissue injury, the more tissue injury you had, the higher your pain level and that you needed surgery and that, you know, disc degeneration correlates with pain. And all th- these are the things that I was taught. And it took me years of reading research. It took me years of experience. It took me years of challenging my beliefs to actually start to understand that it's a lot more complicated than that. So, I think that it's incredibly uh, short-sighted of us as clinicians a lot of times to expect our patients to just flip a switch and understand that. And, and again, that's that's why I wanted to write this book is to try to simplify that information as much as possible. And that's why we also, there, there, you know, there's multiple sections in the book, you know, five or six different sections on different ways to understand pain and graded exposure and movement and injury. And within each one of those sections, there's probably five or or six or seven different stories or analogies because not everything is going to resonate with every single person all the time. So you need to have some different avenues to go down, some different conversations. You know, 
maybe maybe I understand an analogy about sunburn really well with graded exposure, but somebody else doesn't extend, doesn't understand that quite as well. Or maybe I understand an analogy about building up um, tolerance to alcohol. You know, the first time I drank a beer, I, I got buzzed really quickly. And then as I got into college and became a more uh, experienced drinker, then it, it would take maybe maybe four or five or six beers before I felt a buzz. And what that is, is that's building a tolerance, right? So I'm exposing myself to alcohol, which is something that's a little bit strenuous on my system. And you get to where you manage that more effectively over time. And, and exposure to to stressful stimuli on the outside of the body, like doing a squat or going up and down stairs if you have a sore knee is much the same. Well, right now, maybe one or two squats or going up one flight of stairs really makes your knee sore. But if you can gradually expose yourself to that over time and do it in a way that is the right dose, right? You don't want to go to the pub and drink 20 beers the first time because you're going to hate your life the next day. Um, but if you gradually build yourself up over the course of months, well, then you can tolerate that a lot better without having as bad of a hangover. So it's much the same going up and down a flight of stairs or doing some squats with a sore knee. You, you don't want to do 20 flights of stairs the first day because obviously your knee is going to just be terrible afterwards. It's going to hate you because it's going to become very sore. But if you have a have a healthcare provider that can help you find a dosage and a level of activity that is right for you right now, and then step by step, week by week, you gradually increase that, what you're going to do is make your knee less sensitive. You're going to make your muscles around your knee a lot stronger. You're going to make uh, the tissue within your knee healthier. And all of a sudden, in a month or two, you're going to notice that you're able to do so many more stairs or so many more squats or, or so much more activity with a lot less pain. Hmm. I think for any clinicians listening as well, that's that's a really interesting point that it's not just about having your favorite anecdote or your, your favorite fable uh, uh, to equate pain and graded exposure. You need an arsenal. You need something that's going to apply and resonate with different types of patients, different age groups. We can't just throw the callus um, uh, at them and expect everyone to resonate with that and understand that. Some people are going to be desk jockeys who've never built a callus in their life. Some people may have never had a beer and they're going to look at you like an alien. So we really need to not only have our favorite anecdote um, or, or favorite um, way of explaining it, we need two, three, five or six to be able to relate to the patient in front of you. And, and for any uh, patients with back pain who've sat there and listened to a story and thought, I have no idea where this is going. Don't be afraid to tell your practitioner, say, I'm really sorry. I've never rolled an ankle before. I've, I've, I've never had a callus. Um, <laughs> try again, choose something different. We should be able to, <laughs> um, uh, to adapt to who's sitting in front of us. Yeah, that's, the, I mean, that's one of the worst things that we can do is just, um, is just treat every person that we interact with like they want to hear exactly what we want to hear or what we want them to hear or what we want mm. to say because we're different people. And there's a, there's a really phenomenal researcher. Uh, he's, I believe is from Australia. His name's John Quintner. And he talks about something called the intersubjective third space. And that's a really big jumbly term. So I'll break it down. And <laughs> it's essentially to say, you know, 
you as the clinician, you come into this interaction with a patient. The patient comes into that interaction with you. You both bring your own history. You both bring your own beliefs. You both bring your own um, expectations. And you're engaging in an interaction to learn from each other, to work together. And that's happening within a context, right? Within a bubble. And that bubble is going to be different whether you're in London or whether you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, or whether you're in South Africa. And it's going to be different with, um, um, you know, what your culture is, and it's going to be different with what the local customs and, you know, expectations are. So you have to kind of mm. understand what's inside that bubble and then come to each other, understanding that you each own, you each have your own bubble within a bubble, and you're trying to merge those things to figure out how can we uh, interact the best way possible to yeah. help you meet your goals, you know, not not push you down my pathway. And I'm not just going to let you do anything and everything that you want as my patient. We're going to figure out what is, you know, the best science say, what are your preferences? What are your expectations? Like, what are your beliefs? And we're going to try to figure out the best way yeah. to go within, you know, those constraints or within uh, that, that little inner subjective space. Mm. And that's going, to, that's going to be obviously hugely different for different patients, but it's obviously going to take different amounts of time for different patients as well. So some patients are going to be straight on board with this from the first hour you talk to them. They're going to be very open to everything you're talking about, everything you're open, open to everything that you're saying. And then others are going to need, you know, months or even years, I guess, to kind of come on board with this explanation of pain. If someone's had pain for 30 years and you're trying to change their whole perception of how pain is, is experienced or, or how it's understood, then, you know, they might come back to it in six years time and go, oh, actually, I remember what that guy was talking about. It does kind of make a bit more sense now. I've had another episode of back pain or whatever. So it's going to, going to take time with some people. No, absolutely. It's any, this, this is what happens to young clinicians all the time, right? We, we learn a lot of this information. Um, may, maybe, maybe you read my book, maybe you read some other person's book, whatever, you read some research articles and you learn something and you get super excited and you run straight to the clinic and you start forcing it down people's throat. You know, every patient that walks through the door, they're getting this information, they're getting this information. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a big mistake because you, you're not taking the time to try to assess when people are ready for information. And not everybody's ready for that information on day mm -hmm. one. And, and that's another reason to maybe have quite a quite a wide range of different stories and examples and, and things like that that you can tell people. So when you're talking with your patient and you guys have different experiences in clinic or you do different exercises or, 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 or treatments, or maybe they had an experience over the past weekend that they're telling you about, it rings a bell in your head to say, wow, you know what? I, I kind of have something that might make sense to you. Would it be okay if we had a conversation about you know, X, Y, and Z, because I think I can help you make more sense of what you were just telling me. And I don't know if you guys, you guys noticed what I did here was asking, you know, asking someone for permission. Um, yeah. And patients, I, I feel like all clinicians should ask you for permission before they do anything with you or, 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 or start to try to explain things to you. Um, and clinicians, if you're listening, Get your patient's permission before you start to try to, you know, shove information on them or anything like that. Maybe they're not ready to hear it. Maybe they don't want to give you permission and or maybe they just feel like you're talking down to them. But if you if you have permission and you're engaging in a conversation, uh, a lot of this goes a, a lot better. Uh, so it doesn't matter how great your stories are. It doesn't matter if I wrote, you know, this book and it's it's good or not. If if you don't have an open, you know, respectful dialogue where each other are willing to hear mm. to hear each other out. Mm.
I love that. Uh, I think a lot of clinicians will be used to asking permission for physical exams, for treatment, for rehab programs, or taking a patient through something, but not many will be used to asking permission before they explain something. So that's a really interesting concept, and I think that's something I might run and adapt and try again tomorrow <laughs> with, with, with my patients. So, 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 but that's only going to be for, for benefit. So, thank you for that. I think it can be a bit of a, a clinician's curse as well. The the sort of uh, maybe this is me projecting here, guys, but we can sometimes like to grandstand a little bit. I've been saving this explanation up all morning, waiting for this person to come in and they're going to get it whether they want it or not today. Um, so I love that. Yeah. Uh, asking that permission. And they might even say, do you know what? Today's not the day next time. You know, it's not that they don't want to hear it. It's just not going to hit home today. And actually you've probably saved yourself a job there. Um, instead of trying to ram an explanation down their throat. Um, I'm learning here, Jared. I like this. <laughs> you know, well, I'm glad. I'm glad you guys are learning something. Ho- hopefully, I'll, I'll be excited yeah. <laughs> to hear from you. I'll be excited to hear from you. You know, after you maybe try it out a little bit. But it's it's sometimes it's things that are so simple. And it it changed it changed my practice just to say, mm. you know, hey, you know, I noticed I noticed that you said X, Y, and Z. That's that's pretty interesting. I I, I might have a little bit more information on that that would help make sense if you'd be willing to to hear me out. Would you want to hear more about that? Right. So you just throw it out there. Hey, I've, I've got something. I think that it's relevant. I think that it might be meaningful for you. If you're open to hearing it, let's talk about it. If you're not, no big deal. We'll move on. Um, but you give people the choice. Right. And, and it's yeah. it's kind of the part of getting away from the traditional paternalistic healthcare model where, you know, the doctor knows best and you just do whatever the doctor says, no matter what. Well, that's 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 gotten us in some hot water. That's kind of why we're in the, the state that we're in right now. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant. So what I'd like to I'd like to move on for obviously this the the book is has got you know fifty plus stories and analogies for lots of different concepts. So what I'd like to do is kind of ask you about your favourite analogies for a couple of the different chapters, if you'll be okay with that, and you you know kind of take us through one or two of your favourite ones or ones which you find you use more frequently than others or might be more beneficial for others. Um, the first one being kind of around pain being a matter of perception, which I know you know, all the complexity of pain, if you have any, any good ones for that. Yeah. So I think, um, probably the most popular or most well-known kind of story or analogy in, uh, that, that realm is that pain is a lot like an alarm system, right? So this kind of comes from Lorimer Mosley and maybe Adrian Lowe a little bit. And for those of you listening that don't know, those those guys are big time physio, like back pain, pain researchers. Um, and the it's goats, the constant. Yeah, <laughs> it's the concept that um, pain is a lot like an alarm system and pain doesn't mean damage, but it, it, it's there to alert you that something might be going on and uh, that maybe you should check something out. But just like you have a smoke alarm that goes off in your house uh, to let you know if there might be a fire. Just because the smoke alarm goes off doesn't always mean that there's a fire, right? Maybe there's a little bit of just some smoke. Maybe you're cooking up something really good on the stovetop and it's letting off, you know, a lot of smell and it it sets the smoke alarm off. Or maybe the battery is just low. Maybe it's dysfunctional and then it starts chirping. It starts beeping at you. It starts going off, right? And all of those scenarios are scenarios in which the smoke alarm is going off, but most of them, there's not actually a fire. There's not actually anything that is super concerning, super scary, so that's the most common one that pain is pain is like an alarm system. But but probably from this book, Making Sense of Pain or Sticks and Stones, uh, my favorite in that area is that 
the the alarm system actually be, can become more robust over time. And this is something, this is a concept that I think gets lost on people. So imagine this, um, you've got a home alarm system that uh, you, your house gets broken into. You live in a sketchy part of town and your house has gotten broken into every, every month for the last 12 months. So you decide, I'm going to get a better alarm system. I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to put sensors on all my windows. I'm going to put extra deadbolts. I'm going to get a guard dog that learns to protect the door and growl and bark. I'm going to get lasers that go all through my house and sense motion. <laughs> uh, so because you've been repeatedly exposed, to a break-in, you get this really, really aggressive alarm system in your house to be able to detect anything. Well, your body can actually function really similarly to that. So let's say you've, you've hurt your back and then maybe a month later you tweak your back again and maybe three months later you tweak your back again. And all of these are small injuries. You know, they're just little strains and little sprains, but at the same time, you're becoming concerned. You're becoming fearful. You're kind of getting a little bit hypervigilant. You're paying attention to your back more. You go to the healthcare provider. The healthcare provider says, wow, you know, you've really messed up your back. They do an x-ray and you see facet degeneration and, uh, uh, you know, disc desiccation and all of these sort of scary sounding terms. Guess what? Boom. You, all of a sudden, you've got uh, lasers and sensors everywhere, and you've got a protective guard dog, and now your alarm system is dramatically uh, more sensitive than it was before. So now less movement, less activity, less load, less stress on your back can actually set that alarm off. So you can gradually over time essentially retrain your body to be a much more protective alarm system. Um, and that's what we call like the medical side of that is called neuroplasticity, right? Your nervous system kind of plastically changes or it rewires itself over time to either become more sensitive or less sensitive or pick up on certain movements and certain uh, sensations a little bit more aggressively. So your body has a built-in feedback system that can make itself more and less sensitive over time. So that means that the same exact activity, the same exact motion, the same exact changes in your low back or your knee or whatever it is can all of a sudden register on your alarm system much more aggressively. And you can have pain quicker and you can have more aggressive pain from the same thing that actually in reality shouldn't necessarily um, be that, that uh, extreme. I love that. I love that. And then so then 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 there's those normal movements which otherwise wouldn't cause pain then start becoming painful because you've got that hypersensitive trigger that that, that you know sets off that alarm system that then triggers pain. That that's exactly right. And, and um, I see that every day in my practice. And, and there's there's different there's different factors between different people that can make that more and less likely. And, you know, just for instance, I'm going to throw this out because I feel like it would be a travesty if I didn't. There's a lot of evidence mounting that if people, if, if people are chronically underslept, you know, if you're, if you're getting less than six hours of sleep a night, guess what? That automatically winds up your alarm system. It makes it a little bit sensitive. Um, and what I don't want to do is stress people out about sleeping. But if you recognize, wow, you know, I only sleep four or five hours a night. You you may be somebody that's setting yourself up to have a more sensitive alarm system just because uh, sleep is so integrally tied to how your nervous system functions and, you know, other things like stress and anxiety and, you know, uh, 
maybe dealing with depression and, and things like that also can make that system more sensitive. So this is that multi-dimensional aspect of pain. So it's not just what's going on in your back that affects you, but it could be what's going on with your with your emotions and with your current state of mind and with your, your nutrition and with your sleep health and all of these yeah. other factors that you would say, oh, those don't matter for my back pain. Well, they actually do because mm. they could have an effect on that, uh, how sensitive that alarm system is. Wow. Yeah, they they all play a role, and it's all uh, you know all these things are, are contributing factors. Whilst whilst they might not be themselves the cause, they all, all cr- contribute to filling up that cup that overloads and you know g- gives us pain or aggravates our pain or makes it worse. I guess exactly. So then, obviously, we know that your own individual thoughts, your experiences, and your fears all have an impact as well. You know, whether whether that's previous exposure to pain or previous exposure to injury or anything else. So, how does that conf- that context influence your pain? And are there any analogies analogies which you have for helping us to understand that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there there is a section uh, within the books uh, kind of talking about how context experience uh, influences pain, and I think uh, my favorite my favorite story from the book is that that, that illustrates that well is kind of the story of um, taking a walk through the forest, right? So if you imagine, if you just close your eyes, everybody listening to this right now, close your eyes, kind of imagine it's a bright, beautiful, sunshiny day. You're walking through the forest right now. Uh, There's a nice crisp breeze. You're listening to the birds chirp, beautiful evergreen trees, uh, a a babbling stream just rolling in the background. It's very calming. You're you're on a hike with one of your best friends. Your best friend is walking behind you. You kind of hear something rustle behind you and you, you, you feel your best friend touch you on the shoulder, right? In that scenario, it's very happy, it's very bright, it's very light, it's relaxing, it's fun. You wouldn't think twice about hearing a rustle in the leaves behind you and feeling your best friend reach out to touch you on the shoulder. But then if you take a different scenario, you're in the forest, you're in the woods, it's in the middle of the night. Mind you, please still have your eyes closed and envision this right now. Uh, It's cold, it's chilly, you can see the breath, you can see your breath coming out of your mouth, you look up, it's a full moon. Um, You you hear a wolf howl off in the distance, you hear rustling in the bushes, and you hear something rustle behind you and reach out and touch your shoulder. These are the exact same sensory stimulus, right? Something touching your shoulder uh, is going to cause a different response because if it's in the middle of the night, you're, you're concerned, it's a full moon, you hear a wolf howl, you hear something rustling behind you, that's probably going to cause you to release a little bit of adrenaline. That's probably going to cause you to release some stress hormones. Um, you, you might feel your heart rate rise, your blood pressure is going to go up. The way that your muscle tension and your muscle tone is probably going to be a little bit elevated. Maybe you're holding more stiffly, you're holding more tightly rather than being fully relaxed. And what you experience maybe is a little bit of fear, maybe is a little bit of a jump, maybe you take off running, you know, whatever it is, you're going to respond to the exact same sensory stimulus, somebody touching your shoulder completely differently, right? Um, One is going to be a very relaxed experience. One is going to be a very, you know, ramped up, stressful, concerned experience. So take that concept of how the exact same sensory stimulus, which is somebody touching your shoulder, you know, could be different if you're uh, maybe experiencing pain. So um, if you are in a scenario where, you know, you're, you're calm, you're rested, you're not stressed, you, you're relaxed, 
the likelihood that a, that a sensory stimulus causes you pain is actually reduced versus if you're stressed out, if you're anxious, uh, if your system is wound up, if you're um, you know very tired because you haven't slept in a while, all of these things going on, then a sensory stimulus, like maybe you, you tweak your back a little bit or you do something, that dramatically increases the likelihood that you're going to have a painful experience just because of the context that you're in, just because of the environment that you're in, just because of the way that your body is functioning within that context and how the context influences the, the physiology that you have. So if we're telling people, for instance, that, uh, you know, if, if, a, if a patient walks into a clinic and they see spine models with bulging discs on it and they see pictures up on the wall of big, red, swollen and degenerating spinal models and this sort of thing. And we're telling them that their back is worn out and we're telling them that their their discs are slipped out everywhere. Uh, well, the, the sensory stimulus that they get from bending forward in that context could be dramatically upregulated versus if we're telling them that it's safe, we're not telling them that their back is degenerated, we're telling them that their back is strong and that it can handle this, it's a normal movement, all of, the, all of this sort of stuff. Well, the sensory stimulus in that scenario has a lower likelihood of causing pain or a lower likelihood of causing as intensive pain. So we can, we can influence what we feel and how we experience something just by changing the context within which we experience it. Amazing. Um, I love this, Joan. I can almost hear the light bulbs turning on, people listening. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of aha moments going on out there as people are listening to that. Um, very relatable. I'm conscious of our time here. Is there any other <laughs> favorite analogies or, or favorite stories that we've got to share today with our listeners? Uh, one, two, whatever we can for time. <clears throat> what, what's your go-to um, uh, usages? So I think that if, if, if we had to go with one more, um, mm. this is probably one of the other most popular um, analogies or stories or explanations within the rehab world. And it, it's the concept of um, wrinkles on the inside. And I know you guys have heard this and maybe some of some of you guys that are listening have heard this as well. It was to the best of my knowledge, it originated with a guy named Tim Flynn who's a physio in uh, the United States in Colorado, really, really smart guy who runs the uh, Pain Reframed podcast or used to run the Pain Reframed podcast. Um, so it's the concept that as you age, we all develop wrinkles on our forehead. Like I can see my wrinkles right now on my forehead. If you look here, I'm, I've got a nice little bald spot on the top of my head. I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing hair. Uh, you know, I, I don't look like I did when I was 18. But these wrinkles on my forehead, they don't hurt. I don't have degenerative face disease. I'm not worried that my <laughs> face is going to cause, I'm, I'm not worried that my face is going to cause me all sorts of pain. And I don't have degenerative scalp disease. I don't, I'm not worried that my bald spot is going to cause me a problem. And as I mentioned earlier, over time, we've gotten more advanced imaging, right? We can see inside people's bodies now. And we always understood that, well, when you get older, you get wrinkles, uh, you know, your collagen changes in your skin. It's not as stretchy as it was. You lose hair, um, even maybe, you know, your teeth fall off or your hair turns gray or whatever it may be, right? We've always understood that and we've never said, well, why don't we have skin pain and why don't we have head pain where we lost our hair and all of that sort of stuff? But when we started being able to see inside the body, we're like, man, um, 
these people's knees and these people's backs and these people's shoulders, well, they don't look perfectly pristine like they do when they're 18 years old. So this must be a degenerative process that's causing pain and causing problems um, because they're here with back pain. They're 50 years old. They're here with back pain. We did the image. They've got these changes on this on their imaging findings. That must be the cause of their pain. Um, but what we're finding out now is over time, just like you get wrinkles on the outside of your body, you get wrinkles on the inside of your body as well. And now wrinkles in reality, they do make your skin, you know, if your skin is wrinkling, it, they do make it a little bit less strong, right? It's not, your skin is not quite as strong as you were when you were 18 years old, if you're, if you've lost this collagen and stuff, but it's not pathological and it's not a problem. So if you're 50 or 60 years old and you've had some changes to, to your spine, well, maybe it's not quite a hundred percent as strong as it was when you were 18 years old, but that's fine because ju- just, just because you have those wrinkles doesn't mean that it is pathological, right? You get wrinkles just as you age. It's a normal part of process. They happen on the outside. They also happen on the inside. So I say that with the big warning and the big sign to, to remind people, when you go get an image and you see these findings on your image, they are normal. They are okay. Everybody your age has them. Literally everybody has them. And everybody that you know doesn't have back pain. And everybody that you know doesn't have knee pain. But everybody does have facet degeneration and minor disc bulges and loss of disc height and um, facet arthropathies. And they have loss of cartilage in their knees and they have partial rotator cuff tears in their shoulder. And all of this is really, truly a normal part of aging that's not actually a pathology it's a wrinkle and we only notice it or you only find out that you have it when you've finally done something that's caused pain. When you've finally gotten a scenario where you stressed it a little bit too much or you overworked it or you, you know, you lifted funny and you tweaked something, you sprained something. Um, so what you're seeing on those images, the vast majority of time are things that have been there for, for years. And uh, it's not something that you need to necessarily be super concerned about the vast majority of the time. Wrinkles on the inside. Um, fantastic, Jared. I, I love that analogy. I'm, I'm stealing that. Um, okay, look, I, I feel like we've only just scratched the surface today. Um, I know people are going to be asking, Jared, where can we find out more about you and your work? Sure. So I'm I'm pretty active on social media. Uh, you guys can find me at um, at Dr. Jared Hall DPT on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all of that sort of stuff. Um, I run a, an education company and a podcast called Modern Pain Care uh, with my partner Mark Cardula. So we're always putting out podcasts talking about things like this. We're always doing videos and posts on uh, Facebook and Instagram and and Twitter and that sort of stuff, kind of putting out this information. I'm extremely open to any messages. I, I love to hear from people. Uh, I promise you, I will try to message you back, you know, as soon as reasonably possible. So feel free to message me on, on Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. You could email me at um, uh, jared at modernpaincare.com. I would, I would love to hear from people and I would love to hear if you absolutely hated listening to me today. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, you know, give, give me some feedback so I can be better. Amazing. I love it. And uh, we'll put the, the links up to uh, Making Sense of Pain, um, Sticks and Stones as well. Um, and we'll try not to give any money to Bezos. Yeah. 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jared, thank you so much for joining us. That's been, a, I said, a whirlwind tour of a, of a hugely complex topic. And we could have spoken about this for 12 hours, you know, and still only then would have just scratched the surface. So thank you for taking time out of your day. I know this is your lunch break to, uh, to talk to us. No, I appreciate it. Like I said, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy you guys invited me and I would love to talk with you guys anytime. Brilliant. It's been Fantastic. an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Over and out. Bye.